We are starting a new sermon series today on the book of Esther. And Esther is a well-known book in the Old Testament as the events in Esther give the background to the Jewish festival of Purim. Purim continues to be celebrated even today, but it is also one of the is also one of two books within the Bible that are named after women, the other being Ruth. So the book of Esther is rather unique, and it's the focus of much discussion for these reasons and many more. But as we will see today and in the coming weeks ahead, Esther is a hard book to understand and digest. In fact, throughout the history of the church, some have wondered why the book of Esther is even included in Scripture, in in the Bible. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, asked that very question. And when it comes to Esther, even furthermore, like we don't know who the author is, we don't know who the intended audience is, nor do we know what the book's intended purpose is. Further, like God's name is never mentioned. Like we never hear the name of God mentioned, he's never praised, he's never prayed to, and the two heroes of the book, Esther and Mordecai, they are morally ambiguous. They're, we don't know their motives. In fact, the writer doesn't even provide commentary on their actions. That We have no uh, framework. The book of Esther provides no framework to understand their actions. We never see them pray. They never hear the law. We never see them observe the dietary laws, nor do they return home to Jerusalem. And so with the book of Esther, the picture of God that we have is that he is absent. He is hidden. Yet, even though you don't see him, he is moving. He is moving. One commentator, Karen Job, wrote that the absence of God is the genius of the book. And what does she mean by that? What does she mean by the fact that the absence of God is the genius of the book? Well, consider a different question. And this is a very helpful question to understand scripture at all, like, whether it's books of the Bible or just a smaller text that you're reading. The question is this, what would be missing from our understanding of God and and our understanding of life if the book of Esther was missing? What would be missing if Esther was not in the Bible? And this is a crucial question because what we see, the answer to that question is that Esther gives us a picture of a God who is always there even though he's hidden. He is always active. He is always working to save, rescue, and protect his people, even when his name is never mentioned, even when we never see his people seeking God's face. And so the hidden hand of God is there. And this is what theologians call the doctrine of providence, where God is working and behind everything. God is working in everything. That's providence. So Esther is a book of God's providence. In fact, it's the living truth of Romans 8.28 that all things work together for the good of God's people. And so we're going to see how that's the case by diving into Esther's, Esther chapter 1 this morning. And so uh, if you can follow along, this is Esther 1, beginning of verse 1, reading uh, up until verse 19. Verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. And he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. 180 days. 
And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehiman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king in her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were well-versed in law and judgment. The men next to him, being Karshina, Shethar, Ad- Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Mimikon, the seven princes in Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memican said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they say, King Ahasuerus commanded the queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king... Let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is to never again come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. This is the word of the Lord. Esther is a unique book in the Bible. On one hand, it's historical narrative. It's telling the story of Israel's exile during the Persian years. But on the other hand, it is something like a New Testament parable. It is a story that has a specific message. It has a moral lesson to it. And one writer in writing this about the parables is that parables reveal the foundation on which we stand. Are we standing on solid rock or are we standing on shifting sand? And Esther raises similar questions. What are you standing on? What's the foundation for your life? But so what is the story about? What is Esther about? It is a story about power. And power is important to our lives as as it is a gift from God. It's important to go back to the beginning of God's story. God makes man in his image and commands them to make something of the world. Adam goes out and names all the animals, naming all creation. God gives both Adam and Eve, man and woman, men and women, authority in the world. But something happens later on. They are tempted. If you disobey God by eating of this tree, then you will be like him. And so sin 
The picture of sin right there is that it is all about usurping God's rule and making power into something that's not meant to be. You can get power through your sex appeal, through charm, through money, through cunning and manipulation, through brute strength, or even knowledge. And this is exactly what's going on in the book of Esther. Ahasuerus is demonstrating his power and his might of his empire. He thinks he's the most powerful man in the the world, an ancient superpower, but the reality is he's weak. He's powerless, just like any other human being. The person whom he is supposedly closest to does not listen to him, does not obey him, does not yield to his power just by saying no. Esther is a story of irony. We're engaged in great reversals and contrasts. And the contrast that we want to think about today is power. What's the difference between worldly power and spiritual power? But before I want to get to this contrast, I want us to think about the background of the events in Esther because it really heightens this, the contrast of power that we'll look at. So what, what's going on in the background? What's going on in the history of Esther? And there's two things I just want to point out in this historical background. Now, if you follow Israel's story throughout the Old Testament, you know there are highs and lows. You see the beginnings of Israel when God called Abraham to follow him. You see how Jacob and his sons escape famine and starvation by going to Egypt, but then they are enslaved. And we see how they are rescued in a very dramatic way under Moses' leadership. They go to their promised home. But on their journey to the promised land, they meet with God at Mount Sinai. They receive his law that is meant to govern their lives. And the law is this, that if you walk with me, keep all these commandments, and I will watch over you. I will protect you. If you don't walk with me, if you don't keep these commandments, you will lose this promised land and wind up in exile. And so if you fast forward 500 years, Israel has not walked with God. And so now they are in exile. And this is the existential crisis for Israel. They wonder, are we still God's people? We've been faithless. Is God still faithful to us? And we learn through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther that the answer is yes, because these three books are written about God's people during the time of exile. And so we see God's people rescued from Babylonian rule by the Persians, and they are allowed to return home. Some do, and they begin rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and the the temple. And we see that clearly demonstrated to us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But the majority of Israelites do not return home. They stay in Babylon. They stay in Persia. And so the question for them is, are they still God's people? Does God still reveal himself to them? Does God, will God save them from harm? And the picture of, of Esther, the answer to that question, are we still God's people, is yes. That's what Esther is telling us. And Esther is showing us that we have a sometimes hidden God. So that's the first thing. This is about, this is, the events of this book take place within the time of exile. And on the second hand, the second thing to know about the historical context is that the Persian Empire is at its height. King Ahasuerus is better known by his Greek name, and it's a name that most of us, if not all of us, know. His name is Xerxes. The story of Esther takes place during the early reign of Xerxes, who reigned from 486 BC until his assassination in 465. His bodyguard was actually the one who assassinated him. And, and Xerxes is his Greek name. But his Persian name is Ahasuerus. And when he comes to the throne, when he gains power, he's only 32 years old when he becomes the most powerful man in the world. 
And then we read that the events in Esther begin in the third year of his reign. And so he's 35 years old. And the whole book of Esther spans a 10-year period. And so the author of Esther begins here for a reason. He wants us to know that Ahasuerus was the ancient superpower. He wants us to know what where Xerxes started with because he knows that Xerxes is going to be assassinated. But he also knows that Xerxes, Ahasuerus, is the one who is responsible for the downfall of the Persian Empire as he went on a military conquest to defeat Greece. But yet he lost the 300 Spartans and, uh, and 1,500 other Greeks. So the author who knows all this just like the rest of Western civilization does. The author starts here at the peak of the power to highlight for us what worldly power looks like. And so what is worldly power and how do we see the worldly power on display for us in Esther 1? The author highlights worldly power, specifically Ahasuerus' power in great detail. Just look at some of the details here in in verse uh, 6 and 7. Why does the author provide details about the architecture of the the party? That there are white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars. That there is a mosaic pavement complete with mother of pearl and porphyry and more. Why does the author give such detail? Well, the only other place, and we see this actually... We see this type of detail when it comes to architecture in two other occasions in Scripture. It's when it pertains to the tabernacle and to the temple. And so both of those places are the dwelling place of God. And so the author wants us to see that Ahasuerus understands himself to be a Persian god. He is claiming to be a god. He is competing with the one true living God. And so he's in the midst of a 180-day-long feast. And this party has been going on for six months. He's the most powerful man in the world, rolling over Ethiopia to India. It took 180 days for him to display the best of his empire, the food, the drink, the riches. What's his purpose? Why is he showing off all his wealth? So on what, what, but the, the answer to that, twofold. One is that, this is a war council. He's trying to garner uh, support from his governors as he seeks to go on his military campaign to Greece. So there's a very practical function there. He's trying to win the, the. He's trying to deepen his governor's loyalty to him. So he's trying to say, like, hey, look at all this treasure. This could also be yours. So he's parading his power in front of in front of them, but. We also see something happening similarly in the book of Babylon. Excuse me, in the book of Daniel. Daniel's taken captive from Jerusalem into exile, and food and drink are part of the Babylonian and Persian program for assimilation. Why be a Jew when you could be a Persian? Think about it this way. If you could have maple syrup, would you settle for Mrs. Buttersworth? If you could have the chance to have bacon, would you instead settle for bacon bits? Or perhaps if you could have an amazing salmon, would you instead just eat bland tilapia? And so Ahasuerus is bringing out the best of his food, and he wants you to think, wow, it's great to be a Persian. And Ahasuerus' predecessors did this differently. Like they, like Cyrus, for example, the one who liberated the Jews from Babylonian captivity, he, he, he let the Jews return home. 
and he even financed the rebuilding of Jerusalem and other cities that his that people has returned to. So Ahasuerus is charming his people into loyalty, into submission, and we see this occurring um, for, in other emperors and empires in this time. But our world does something similar. Our world fights for our imaginations and our hearts, seeking to charm us. Sometimes we are called names. We're we're picked on or and mocked. I remember when I was growing up, Christians were called weird. And today, if you believe in the historic Christian faith, then our secular post-Christian culture will call you backward, at least, or at worst, you're even a bigot. And so that's what our world does. Our world says, hey, it's great to be a Persian. It's great to be secular unless you're Vashti, unless you are a vulnerable person. And, and this is really the true test of a culture. How does a culture treat the most vulnerable people around you? And Queen Vashti, she's the queen. She's supposedly protected, but she is summoned not as a person or a hostess, but as a trophy wife who is going to be paraded before hundreds and perhaps thousands of drunk men. And most likely she's motivated by fear, where she's fearful for her life. So she says no. She does not want to put herself in a position where she would be hurt or taken advantage of. One writer said this, It was never safe to be a woman. And at a time when emperor and guests were drunk with wine and the promise of war, it was the least safe moment in her entire life. So she said, no, everything stood still. Ahasuerus is angry and speechless. What's the most powerful man in the world going to do? This is a moment of pure, delicious irony. Instead of getting up and to go talk to his wife, he turns to his seven counselors and asks them for their input. What should I do? The most powerful man in the world cannot even figure out how to talk to his wife. He does not even know how to relate to her. And the counsel, the counselors he's going to are also fearful that their wives are now going to do the same thing. So they say, banish the queen. And the lesson's clear. Speak out you'll be in exile. Speak out, you'll fall out of favor. And that's the backdrop for us to understand Esther and Mordecai, and we'll take that up next week. But this is just a quick picture of worldly power. Later, another example later in the book of Esther, when the whole city and empire is in confusion and in uproar, King Ahasuerus is simply eating and drinking away with no care or thought of his subjects. Worldly power seeks to serve itself. If you get power, then you want others to bend to your will and do whatever it is that you want. And this is nothing like God's intentions for power. It's not like the spiritual power that Jesus displayed for us. We learned, and this is the second point. This is when we come, I want to think now about spiritual power. We learn the true purpose of power in Jesus' own life. Jesus looked not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. In other words, the point the purpose of power is about serving others. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That's what we learn about in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, the Son of God, had all the power of the world. He, he had all the power in the world. He told the storm to stop. It stopped. He told his dead man, his dead friend, to come back to life. And Lazarus walked out of the grave. He healed blind men. Blindness receded, and they, they gained their sight. The world obeys him, and death has no power over Jesus. Jesus is the one who has all the power in the world. 
And so power, making something of this world, happens by serving one another. That's God's design for our work. So while Ahasuerus parades his wealth to charm his audience, it's all about him. He wants to become more greater, more powerful, more famous. But God, on the other hand, continues to rescue and save us. There's another stark contrast to make between worldly and spiritual power. Ahasuerus cannot make a decision on his own. He has to defer to the counsel of others. And that's a huge theme throughout the, the book. He's the emperor, but in many ways he's a puppet of others who are jockeying for more and more power. God, on the other hand, is hidden. He governs, but he's not there. He doesn't, he's not there to be seen speaking. He guides even if he seems absent. He protects his people even though they don't see him. And so God is bigger and greater than we think or imagine. And let me end with a story. That's a long story that a pastor friend shared with me earlier this week. In the midst of what he writes to me, in the midst of what's been going on, it's been a hard and draining couple months, the water pump in my Jeep blew out while I was visiting some of our church kids at their Christian school this morning. I was frustrated as this was just another thing that happened in a long list of things that have been going on in the, in the, over the past few challenging weeks and months. For example, last week my phone died and I lost half a, a day of work. Then our dog got sick, and I spent half a day cleaning up after him. Then at the beginning of this week, I, I threw my back out, and so I'm, I'm now getting some therapy and recovering, and I'm not sleeping well. And so there's just been a lot going on. And so after all this, I humorously thought to myself, <laughs> what else is going to happen? So the, anyway, the humorous part of it all happened to me. And I, it, it, it was, yeah, something else happened. The water pump blew out. So anyways, I have to call a tow truck, and the tow truck guy shows up. We chat a bit about the vehicle, and I notice he's got the Punisher skull tattooed on his arm. I chuckle, and I tell him, I've got the same thing tattooed on my chest. He looks. He asks if I'm a teacher at the school, and I tell him I'm not. In fact, I'm a pastor visiting some kids, and his eyes got real big, and he says something about pastors, tattoos, and evil. We keep... Chatting as he loads up his Jeep and we hop in and drive to the mechanic. Turns out he's a lapsed Christian who's been thinking of going back to church because he's got a six-year-old son whom he wants to be exposed to Christianity. He's been struggling with the fact that he doesn't really have anyone to talk to about these things. So he was actually excited to have a pastor drive around with for 20 minutes. I offered to take him out for a beer and talk some more and so we exchanged numbers. We talked about not trusting a lot of pastors because he grew up in a church and he heard some crazy things taught and he just wants the Bible. So I directed him to our sermon podcast. I said, I understand being leery from being burnt. So if you want to, you can always check out some of the teaching in order to decide if I'm someone he wants to talk with. A couple of hours later, he sends me this text. Hey, I started one of your sermons. Not too far into it, but it's great. A plus. Really makes me excited for a sit down when we get to have one. My friend closes with this line. I'm thinking this might be worth a blown water pump. God is powerful over everything. From water pumps and conversations with tow truck drivers. He's powerful over everything. From the, your sickness of your, to your kid's sickness to challenges 
in work, and everywhere in between. So amid the challenges of life, we may wonder about his love. We may wonder if he's even there or if he's present, if he, he even loves us. But the message of Esther is that he is there. He loves us. And he is active in our lives. That he is, in fact, working to save us. And so this is the entire idea that we're going to spend the next few weeks exploring But it's the message that we have a sometimes hidden God. And even if he's hidden from us, he is always working in our lives because he loves us. Let's pray.